Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Okay, folks, we are here to talk about advocacy and unraveling ways to get advocacy or to get um, costs paid for in other ways than we've usually thought of for people who are senior citizens or uh, not able to get normal VR kinds of uh, money. And so that's why it's AAVL and the Rehabilitation Task Force here um, leading this event. Primarily, we're looking at ways to get services by using Medicaid rather than by using um, VR, if if that's the way that you have to go to get some services. And um, so uh, Jeff has been in this field a lot longer than I have, and um, he has more experience. I'm just going to give you a roadmap to how it kind of works. Um, and I will let Jeff start with his thoughts, and then we can go from there. Okay, thank you. So I'm Jeff Tom, and I am the um, Advocacy Services Chair for the American Council of Blind, and welcome to everyone today. So we're going to get interactive, and maybe you can borrow Chris's mic to do this. Um, The first question is, how do you define vision rehabilitation services? Who wants to take a crack at that? So uh, this is Marisa Musemich, and I will try and take um, take a take a shot and describe the vision rehabilitation services. So the way I think of them, it's um, services that provide assistance to individuals who are uh, blind or have low vision. Um, those can range from uh, vocational rehabilitation services for um, individuals who are 18 um, between the ages of 18 and uh, 55. And then the other aspect is uh, the branch that provides um, services to senior citizens um, to get their independent living um, training and to learn the skills of blindness. Okay, great start. So do we, if we have a, another hand, either in the room or on Zoom, does anybody want to give us examples of the services that Marissa sort of gave us a, an outline? This is Sharon. I'll speak. Okay. Hi, I'm on Zoom. Uh, Sharon Strukowski. Um, I think uh, having done some work with people, people, especially who lose sight later in life, there are some very basic things. I first thing that comes to mind is medication labeling and being able to do that. Uh, I think another huge issue is acceptance that life can still go on as a person with vision loss. Uh, I think another big uh, stress point is transportation, because if you've driven your whole life and now maybe you can't or you shouldn't, how to make that happen Uh, and how to get where you need to get is very, very complicated for a lot of people, especially if they haven't been used to using a smartphone and may not then have access to Uber and Lyft. Uh, So those are the things that I think about initially. Thank you. Great. Great. Sharon, good to hear your voice. Sharon is actually the Secretary of the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. Happy to hear you. Um, okay. Anyone else? Yes, it's Danette. And it's, it's also a place where to get, um, like the 18 year olds ready for college, like, um, computer training or anything and get people who have already had a job uh, adjusted to their, to, to their work environment. That's correct. So all of you are right. Um, and there are even more, but you know, obviously for those with a working goal, goal to go to work, um, employment-related services are extremely important and, and through the vocational rehabilitation system. Um, if you don't have an employment goal, and many, if not most, people who lose their vision later in life do not right away, if ever, 
um, then you can't get vocational rehabilitation services. That's the way the law is. But you can get other services such as some of these have been laid out, uh, mental health services, technology and technology training. Um, You can get things like daily living skills, cooking, cleaning, uh, you know, the whole assortment of things that you need to do. And of course, a, a major one is orientation and mobility, navigating around your environment, um, be it the home, the community, etc. Um, there's also um, vision rehabilitation therapy. Um, there aren't a lot of folks that practice this, but where there where these are available, it's it's essentially a service that enables you to use to learn to use your residual vision to the best extent that you have. So that's sort of uh, in 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 a broad outline the the scope of vision rehabilitation services. So what's the problem with funding? Well, the main, other than those who have that employment goal and go to their departments of rehabilitation or whatever you call it in your state, there's only about a $33 million program that funds the whole country for the, all of those other services that I outlined. Um, my state, California, gets the biggest chunk at $3 million. Now, $3 million to help um, probably closer to a million people, uh, maybe 800,000. I don't know. The statistics vary a little bit. That doesn't seem like enough. It's estimated, for example, that it meets that the money that the, the that is received nationally meets a whopping 3% of the need for vision rehabilitation services. And yet that's the main pile of money we have. Some states like New York and some other states um, do put in a little bit more on their own, but very few states do. Um, occasionally you'll find, you know, through some um, Older Americans Act program, which is a, a another law that provides funding for all sorts of aging programs, you'll find a little bit of money dribbling down to fund some of our services, but that's, you know, next to nothing. So how do we get, um, how do we come up with a way to expand that pool of money? Well, you know, there's, of course, the Older Americans Act, and I'm not going to go into that today, but that's one way to try and get some money. There's Medicare, which people have been advocating for and may continue to do again. And then there's Medicaid. And today we're going to concentrate on Medicaid. Um, because there's a lot of money there and everybody is fighting over it. We're not fighting over it because we hardly ever touch it. So we need, we need to get into the fight. At least I think we do. So now we're going to do, um, my Mike runner who, if you could give me your name so I can thank you properly. This is Zelda. Oh, Zelda. I'm sorry. Oh, man. See if she ever helps me get to the restaurant again. <laughs> Okay, so um, so thanks, Zelda. Anyway, um, uh, here's another question. Who wants to give me, in broad strokes, a definition of what the Medicaid program is? Melanie, you may talk. Medicaid is a program for medical care and also waiver services. If someone has an intellectual or developmental disability and needs a higher level of care for people who are low income that can also be secondary to Medicare and pay for Medicare premiums and co-pays. And if you don't have Medicare, you can actually get some services that you cannot get with private insurance or Medicare, the use of certain hospitals and doctors and things like that. Okay. Thank you. And the other hand, Sharon, you may talk. I don't know a lot about it. Excuse me. A lot about it. But what I understand about Medicaid is that it is definitely for people in a lower income range. Um, and from what I've seen of talking to people, co-pays are pretty minimal, but it's also pretty well defined as to what you can use the program for, as far as I know. And one thing I'm thinking about is that, in, at least in Massachusetts, where I am, there's something called One Care, which is for people 
um, under 65 who are Medicare and Medicaid eligible so that their uh, program needs are met under one roof, so to speak. Um, but I think probably most of the people that we would serve wouldn't be in that category. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Sharon. And we also have Anisio. Okay. Speak. Now I know Anisio is going to know a little bit. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Um, so I, th- I think it's been said already, but I, I believe the Medicaid is, uh, is, is for people is uh is based on on income and um and it often supports people to stay in their homes with uh, people with disabilities with other disabilities not so much blindness uh with uh, home attendance services personal care assistance and all types of other services it's it's federal but i think I believe it varies significantly from state to state in terms how, of how it is applied. Okay, very good. So all of those are right, um, it, although not complete. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of correct information that you've already got. And the Jeff, Medicaid we have program, one more. Um, which has now been in existence for uh, somewhere around half a century. I don't have the exact year, but it was, you know, around then, um, is a federally created and funded in part and governed in part program that is operated by over 50 jurisdictions, every state plus some territories like Guam and Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico and, uh, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, Christine says Washington, D.C., and also um, the Marianas. I believe there's some territories. Anyway, um, and it is a program in which um, there are varying percentages of funding for different parts of the program. And some states, due to some reasons that I won't go into, actually have higher base funding amounts in other states. But at the minimum, the funding is usually at 50%. And then it goes up from there. Some some parts of the program have been funded for 80 or 90%, and then the funding level gets reduced. There are all sorts of differences in in, in, in funding ratios that, the, that Congress has done over the years to do various things. But um, there are... Some services that are required, like, you know, you have to provide hospital services and um, physician services, you know, emergency services, um, you know, things like that. And there are a lot of other services that and and, um, nursing facility services is a big one. And of course, what I haven't said is that. It is based on income. It is meant to help people with disabilities. It is meant to help seniors. And it is meant to help um, families uh, with low incomes as well. And so people who are on SSI are almost always going to be eligible for the program. And people with um, uh, with levels of income somewhat above SSI are going to be eligible in most states. The eligibility limits are in part governed by each state um, because it is in certain ways a program that gives a lot of discretion to the states to administer it as long as they fulfill the you know various and sundry requirements that federal law imposes upon them. And so, you know, every program is different in every state. And so it's, you know, it doesn't help too much to, you know, make a bold assertions with respect to Medicaid because they're all different. Some states use a lot of managed care. Some states use fee for service. The difference there, of course, is that in managed care, you sign up with some type of plan and they have various restrictions on who you can go to. The, the physicians and other specialists have to be in the plan. 
uh, in most instances, fee for service, you can go to whoever you want, um, just like in other types of coverage. Um, so there's all sorts of differences between, um, the way states run their programs and Medicaid keeps changing, um, as states try to, you know, cover more things, but do it cheaply, more inexpensively, uh, as well. Cause it's a huge, huge program, um, in California. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is the case in many states. It is the second biggest chunk of our budget to education. Now, maybe in other states, it's third, maybe, um, you know, uh, transportation roads and, and, you know, transit comes higher than that. But, but it is a huge chunk of money when you put together what the federal government kicks in and what the state kicks in. It's a lot of dollars. So now let us try to see how that, um, can help us in the vision rehabilitation services area. Jeff, we do have one raised hand. Okay. And in fact, I should have said, thank you very much. If there are questions, let's um, take them immediately. Um, And so go ahead and interrupt me as you've done, and we'll do it right now. Area code 682 ending in 597. You may speak. This is Galanda. I was going to respond to the deal about the uh, Medicaid. People with um, who have like medical expenses, like you, if you cannot pay uh, pay for uh, medicines that you need, and they cost a bundle of money. Like I take everything over the counter, but it's somewhat genet- um, generic. And if you don't have the money to pay a bundle of medicines you need. Medicaid in some ways will help you with those type of medical expenses. What she was saying was that Medicaid uh, does assist people who have less funding in covering medications, that she gets things over the counter, but it is a vehicle for people with limited income. That is correct. She is. You are absolutely right. Uh, one raised hand, Jamaica Miller. You may ask your question. Yes, my question is about the um the the Olmstead uh, program. Is that a part of the um part of the uh, waivers program that you're going to be talking about today? Uh, because if it is, I want. I have some. I would like to. Uh, hear, hear, hear a little bit more about um, about what you're going to talk about that. So, well, Jamaica, you asked a, a fantastic question, actually. Um, although I don't really intend to cover it, um, but the Olmstead program can apply to Medicaid in in, in a legal sense, and. Um, what I think I'd rather do, and I know I can, um, I think I can probably get your contact information is talk to you individually about it to see what your problem is and how you think it might apply because, um, rather than try to dig into it today. So after convention's over, maybe we'll chat. So a couple of the things about, uh, Medicaid. Some uh, some people get things for free under Medicaid, all of their services that are covered, and some people have shares of cost, and you know that's an eligibility um, criteria that you know depends on how the state administers their program, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not going to go into all that, but but uh, hearkening back to what uh, our questioner commenter said a minute ago. Um, that is that can be the case. So, you know, even under the existing program, there may be some things that if you can, if you are eligible or if you if you have a, a low enough income and think you might be eligible that you really want to might want to consider. One is the fact that some states 
are broad enough to cover things like visual aid, not many, but, but some. And you might want to look into how your program works. Um, another one is if you are getting placed in a, um, so in an institutional setting, in a nursing facility type setting, um, Medicare, for example, doesn't cover but a limited number of days, a very limited number of days for that. Whereas Medicaid does cover it um, if circumstances are appropriate. So there are things that, you know, a lot of times people don't think about um, applying for their Medicaid program. And I would urge you, uh, you know, if you think your income is even close to the level to apply, to learn how to apply for it. And because all they can do is say no. And, you know, and you never know whether your state's law is going to change to make it easier. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. So let's now get back to the topic at hand um, about how we can use Medicaid as a potential mechanism. Um, there's, there is a, a area of services that states have the option of implementing called home and community-based services. And what the states have to do if they want to spend their Medicaid money on it is they have to actually ask the federal government, come up with a plan to spend money for these services. And they can include things like um, potentially under certain circumstances, um, uh, housing vouchers or ways to, you know, um, put in accommodations for housing. Although in many cases, the federal government hasn't allowed that. Um, they can include personal home care. Um, many states use um, a lot of money in the home and community-based services area to provide in-home care. And in fact, for the severely disabled population, folks in wheelchairs and folks who are quadriplegic and, and who are, you know, have various types of mobility disabilities, um, there is a lot of use of home and community-based services. But in a few states who have gotten very creative, there is even money that is used for vision rehabilitation services. Um, in Montana, for example, you can uh, use it to teach Braille. Um, and in Wisconsin, there is actually an array of services that are provided through um, money under Medicaid uh, that um, are would fall under the vision rehabilitation services category. Um, you, you have to be creative and you have to show that somehow these services are going to enable people to remain in their homes, avoid institutionalization or transition from an institutionalized setting. And this is sort of one of the areas of overlap to Jamaica's very cogent point of a minute ago. The Olmstead decision is essentially that people should be able to live in the least restrictive community environment possible. And home and community-based services are sort of an extension of that because they're based upon the idea of providing services to enable people to, and, and today's catchword phrase is age in place um, and avoid moving into more restrictive settings. So for, let's take some examples of what one might do to um, have a plan for home and community-based services. If you teach somebody how to navigate around their homes and navigate using a cane or a guide dog, learn how to get on a bus and, you know, use paratransit and all these things, that 
is a way of maintaining someone's independence and allowing them to age in place. If you teach someone how to use a smartphone or how to use a computer or how to use a, a labeler for medication bottles or, you know, a hundred other things, both low tech and high tech, um, you know, uh, you know, nowadays we're even seeing a little more of talking devices that people are using. Of course, a talking watch would fall into that category. Even you're enabling people to be independent. You're, you're maintaining them in their homes and conceivably you could even use these services to help them transition out of nursing homes and the like of facilities and and back into their homes cooking cleaning hygiene um even dressing i mean there are literally people that are afraid to dress themselves because they they can't see the colors anymore they they just you know it, it you know it's a it, they're freaked out by doing almost anything after they've lost their vision so all of these services are clearly um, helpful for independence. And of course, of course, mental health services, um, dealing with the isolation, the stigma, um, both with both for themselves and from their families and from their communities and, and the trauma that vision loss creates. Um, this is absolutely an important service. So all of these services um, can be used um, as the basis for keeping people in their homes and communities. Jeff, we do have a hand raised. Okay. Melody? Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for having this call. Um, by the way, I was just wondering if time permits, could you touch on or are you able to touch on the public health emergencies for 90 days that are renewed every 90 days right now during the pandemic, allowing more people to access Medicaid? I've been attending some of the NCLER and White House engagement calls to learn more about that. Um, are you talking about how um, people can stay on their Medicaid benefits during the pandemic? Is that what you're, I'm not quite sure what you're. I know that right now, more people than normal could get access to Medicaid or if they had a waiver expire or have to renew SSI benefits or may not qualify anymore, they can have access and it's renewed every 90 days. They can get medical care and HCVS services during the pandemic and it has to be renewed every 90 days. I think, I don't know if I'm correct or not, by the each state and it is eventually going to run out once the pandemic hopefully settles back down a bit i'm not specifically sure how all that works but i do know that in general and they're about to lift some of these requirements i believe but in general they have been allowing states to maintain um individuals on on their services without um the need to re-examine eligibility during the pandemic. And so that would apply to home and community-based services just like it would apply to everybody else. So that's about as much as I can really tell you, except for the fact that from what I understand, that requirement is soon to expire. And so people's eligibility will again begin to be re-examined. Um, so but that's about all I can really talk to that. So, we in the blindness community have really done a very poor job of getting Medicaid money. As I said, very few states do it. There are many reasons. There have been disputes within the blindness field over who should be allowed to provide services, you know, what, what types of professionals should be funded. Um, there have been uh, dis there have been concerns that if we you know got if we received funding from this medical based program that the doctors would be in charge of all the services we get as opposed to the uh, blindness uh, field professionals themselves. 
Um, and there has been basically, um, in my opinion, a reluctance to get involved with the remainder of the disability community in terms of getting on board to um, to try and get money for these services. And I think um, since the Medicaid program has far more money than any of these other things, we are somehow going to have to do what we can and over the next years along with other funding streams to broaden the scope of money available for vision rehabilitation services. Because if we don't, we're still going to be meeting 3% of that national need. So unless there is some change in federal law that really has an impact on the availability of funding for our services, by whatever law or means we get it. And that is being worked on as a part of the advocacy efforts that um, ACB in, 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 in uh, a long collaboration with a number of other um, blindness entities is undertaking through the Vision Serve Alliance's Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition. Unless we get a federal law change, which is not going to happen in the short term, we have to have some way of, of trying to get additional money. And so the next question that arises then is how do we advocate for Medicaid money? I mean, we don't, you know, we're not Medicaid experts in this room uh, or on Zoom. We don't have that level of expertise. So how do we, how do we begin to navigate the process. The first thing to do is to learn how the program works in your state. Because as I said, every state is different. So who administers the program? Well, you can Google your state Medicaid program. You can go to your state legislator and ask him or her, who do I talk to, uh, to learn about my state's program. You can begin to develop expertise. And you can begin to um, get yourself and other interested folks onto, you know, advisory councils that impact the program. Ultimately, you can um, try to work with others and hopefully professionals in your state that would, would like to see more money, which is what I'm working to do in California because I don't. I don't have the ability or the clout that the professionals can bring to bear when they set their minds to it. And that's what they are now doing in California um, to work on advocacy um, with it, it may have to come with your legislature. You may need an actual law to be passed or you may not. You may be able to do it through the administrative agency that implements your Medi-Cal program, Medicaid program. Sorry. I'm using my own state's um, wording. I knew I'd slip up once. Um, so it is a learning process for you. You learn um, who the um, players are in your community. Um, you get involved with others in the disability and aging community that are involved in home and community-based services. Is this going to be an easy advocacy effort? No. Because we are years behind um, others in the aging and disability community process. And although there's millions of dollars, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars, um, actually, there's probably hundreds of millions of dollars used in home and community-based services. We are actually working to take away some of that money from some people and put it in our community's pockets. So it's not going to be easy. And because we lack the Medicaid advocacy expertise, we have to acquire them. So I don't have easy answers, but um, I the only thing I know is that's the probably the biggest pot of money that I know exists. And so we can either do nothing about it and let that money go and basically 
have very little impact on the uh, uh, on the level of services under vision rehabilitation for services, or we can try to acquire expertise uh, at the state level and um, see if we can't make an impact. Um, I, Jeff, I'm going to say one more little thing, and we'll take the questions. Um, ACB has begun advocacy with um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, that is the federal agency that oversees Medicaid and Medicare, actually, but it oversees Medicaid. And we are going to try to continue um, advocating with state Medicaid officials um, at, at sort of the national level. But in reality, um, although we will certainly try to do as much as we can, it is a state-by-state state effort that has to be undertaken. So, you know, I, I uh, it may be a long shot, but it is, in my opinion, one of the few shots that we have. Okay, questions? Jeff, this is Alan Peterson. And uh, my question is regarding uh, people with vision loss. You know, it, since Medicaid is a needs-based and, uh, you know, income-based program, it wouldn't cover everyone with uh, vision loss if you had you weren't eligible uh, at the Medicaid income requirement level. Is you that- are absolutely correct. But what it would allow you to do if you were if you were a um, older individuals who are blind program in North Dakota, it would allow you to give services to others through your um, federal grant money that you get while you funnel the money to help low-income folks um, okay. through the Medicaid money if you had it. So, yes, sure, sure. there is that limitation, and, 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 but it still would give you more money in your total pot of money to use. Okay, okay. And the, the people that would provide those services uh, through Medicaid would have to meet some uh, requirements, qualification requirements, I assume. Uh, th- that's going to obviously be a state-by-state um, uh, area of criteria as well. Um, your own state, you know, they might require, you know, some states might require occupational therapists to do it all, which is obviously not what I would hope they would do. But but yes, that is something that, um, you, you know, has been talked about. Um, sure. There's even talk, for example, in New York of, um, r- well, right now, orientation and mobility specialists and, say, technology specialists are certified, but they're not licensed. And there's talk in New York of creating a licensing category. And it may well be that we need to create more licensing categories in our fields so that we can help make it make them more attractive to programs like Medicaid or even Medicare or whatever, um, because these folks are licensed individuals and therefore they're they're more likely to be funded. But that's that is an important part of the discussion. Um, and you know, folks like Anisio can can talk more at length than I can about it. But um, you know, we still need to do the advocacy. And, and come to grips with some of those issues as well. So thanks for bringing that up, Alan, because it is an important element. Judy Brown. Yes. Hello, Jeff. Thank you for talking to me. Um, so I happen to also be a nurse and deal on that level when I'm doing discharge planning for people. And my question is, if we can find a way to get some of these um programs covered, uh, what I'm seeing is also that some people that have a visual impairment, but maybe not in a community such as ACB, don't even acknowledge their visual impairment or their need to get extra training. Because I try to talk to them over the phone when I'm doing some discharge planning, um, and they're they're talking about 
other things going on in their lives. But then I realized they can't really cook and they can't really do a lot of other things because maybe their glaucoma has gotten worse. And I can't even get these people to admit that they need an issue. I mean, need help with their issue. Is there any any uh, suggestions that you have along those lines to try to get, because sometimes it's, it's, it's the person themselves that's resistant and not the state as far as um, not being able to get the programs that they need. Well, I mean, that's a good point. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're clearly right that most discharge planners don't do a very thorough job when it comes to our types of, um, you know, consumers when they leave hospitals or other similar settings. Um, but I, I guess I would tell you, though, that um, if the Medicaid program, which is such a, a mainstream program, we're covering these types of services. I suspect that in fairly short order, you would find hospitals learning more about them because part of the problem with, as you say, part of the problem is that, you know, if you went to a hundred um, uh, discharge planners and said, you ever heard of the older individuals who are blind program? I bet you you wouldn't get three who did. Nobody knows about it, um, you know. And so, but if but if but if you know you asked them about Medicaid covered services, they'd all have some response or other because that's what they deal with every day. Okay. Um, what is our partnership? You're not on mic. That is a good question. I, I really think that, you know, all of us know that, you know, Centers for Independent Living have had a um, spotty record in terms of providing the types of services that the specialized services for people with vision loss. There are those that do a great job, um, and there are those many that don't. But I really think that they, one thing that independent living centers do well is that they are very active in, you know, soliciting and in many cases providing um, home and community-based services. And so they could be very important allies, I think. Because it's really part of their duty to make sure that all people with disabilities get the types of services they need. So I think we should work to enlist them as allies. I don't know, you know, every state is going to be different. Some states, the alliances might come easier than others. So, you know, but, but they are clearly a, an advocate of home and community-based services. Now, it could be that, that some folks would think, well, we want to use them for all of our, you know, folks that we currently give them to, and we don't want any more services because that's just going to cut into the pie. And so, you know, I, I haven't thought that through enough, but I do know there's a lot of advocates in the uh, ILC movement that would um, certainly be, uh, I think, cooperative in, in, in such an effort. Um, my question is about home and uh, community-based uh, waivers, because I'm actually under one of those, and I wanted to know how you um, how how you work with the people that that do the care for you, because I'm having some difficulty with that. That is not a, qu a question that is easily answered because every case is different. Um, everybody's care is different. Um, it is, I will tell you, that um, from an AAVL perspective, we have a um, peer support call every Tuesday, and that sort of um, discussion comes up very often on the calls that I um, listen to. So your, your concern is not unique. Um, I think that it's pretty clear that most home care folks don't really know how to deal with blind people very well. 
Um, and so I don't have an easy answer for you, but maybe when we talk about the other thing, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Make Jamaica, you're asked such good questions. Sharon. Hi. Um, I know that traditionally independent living centers haven't been very helpful uh, for blind people, but they do administer, at least in Massachusetts, the personal care attendant program. <clears throat> and I wonder if there's been any talk about expanding that program to go beyond specific personal care, such as eating and toileting and bathing, um, to be more inclusive of some of the things that some blind elders might need to have. <clears throat> so Excuse the me. answer is yes <clears throat> and no. Um, okay. and, and this, and I'm, I'm going to talk about California just because um, in this case, I know the program extremely well. Um, I've worked on it legislatively since I, even before I started in the state legislature, like 40 years ago. So I know it really well. Um, and certainly there are, you know, things like if your state doesn't cover them, um, cleaning, um, perhaps, um, helping with, you know, cooking, um, you know, personal care services. Um, I'll tell you one that um, we have literally been working for like 40 years to get in California. And you would have thought in California, we'd have had it 35 years ago and we still haven't gotten it. Reader services. What more do we need in personal care than someone to read our bills and our mail and all that? And we haven't been able to get it in our, which is now 90% Medicaid funded. Um, it's called the in-home supportive services program. It's, just, it's, it's the same as yours in Massachusetts, but I encourage um, everybody who has a similar program to try and get reader services put in their program. Doug Powell. Doug. Hello everybody. Uh, I thought I'd jump in here, Jeff. Uh, you're doing a great job, and and uh, Chris and uh, I just um, I, since I was on the call with J Jeff um, and a couple other people um, with the CMS p uh, people, the you know the federal uh, people who administer the the uh, the Medicaid program, uh, they were we ha we have some good news and we have some bad news that I thought I'd sort of bring in here. One, the bad news, the good news is that when we talked about the services that we wanted covered um, that don't seem to be available through Medicaid at the moment, they said that all of the services that we need to be, uh, uh, how, how should I say, uh, community, um, community literate, you know, uh, be, you know good, good citizens in the community, all, all of those rehabilitative services could be funded by Medicaid. So they're not uh, statutorily uh, uh, excluded like, like, uh, you know, like the lens thing in, in, in uh, Medicare uh, that is excluded specifically, but um, from Medicaid there, there all of the services that we usually need uh, can, can be, uh, you know, can be served, can be provided by, by Medicaid. However, uh, and I think this is part of what some people are talking about when they talk about approaching the system and getting things, um, getting things, uh, getting services provided. When they ask, they, they know what their services have been in the past and they uh, know the questions that they ask to sort of filter out for um, for people, you know, for people's eligibility. So, you know, can you toilet yourself? Can you dress yourself? Can you get yourself out of bed? Those kinds of things. So, those are questions that they've been traditionally asking people to see whether what kinds of services they need. What they have not been asking are the kinds of questions that would elicit the responses that we need for our kinds of services. You know, yeah, we can get ourselves out of bed. We can clothe ourselves. We, you know, to a certain extent, you know, you know, we can get around uh, within our homes. But what we, you know, we may not be able to cook. We may not, we, we may not be able to read the newspaper. We may not be able to read our mail, as just Jeff just said, and and those kinds of questions. So so 
not only do we need to advocate to make sure that those services are available, but we also need to uh, educate as to what questions people ask to elicit the kinds of services that we want we want and need provided. Yeah, Doug is absolutely correct. That's a great point. Um, and in fact, um, what what needs to happen in a variety of programs in your states that are in the general realm of social services programs is that the assessment, what are called assessment tools, and that's exactly what Doug is talking about, assess for um, social determinants of health, um, that vision loss, uh, you know, encompass so that, you know, you can determine the problems that vision loss is creating in as, as a result of not having the services you need um, for your independence. Because if those questions are an- asked and answered, as Doug has um, cogently expressed it, then you may drive your state toward making changes in their programs, or even in, in some cases, the language may even be broad enough to you know get services through programs already. But at the very least, you'll begin to focus them on potentially making changes. Hey, Jeff, Art, um, just a quick question. What, what is it, what do you think the possibilities of it being such that the SSP programs could be covered under Medicare? The what programs? The special services provider program. You- Oh, um, I, I do not know. It, it could certainly be a home and community-based program. All you have to do is make the case that it keeps people in the community, um, broadly speaking. If the state wants to make that case, they can come up with a federal waiver to include uh, Ask the federal government to allow it to be included. So, is there a is there a bar to it? I would say no. Um, you know, but then again, it's going to have to take advocacy on the part of our community, and um, hopefully, the deaf and hard of hearing community together to work on it. Thank you. All right, Don. Okay, hi. I came in a little late, but two comments. One to the discharge planner and also to people that are working on these issues. I think what you really need to understand is that you're very unlikely to get a yes the first time you approach the topic of needing services unless the services you're talking about are things that people can do very, very privately. It's the reason that it's very hard to convince people to take any kind of mobility instruction or any kind of Braille instruction. The minute there's visibility, it becomes, for a lot of people, I'm going to ignore that because I'm going to then look like I'm blind. And that's why when we look at these alternative strategies, we also have to be advocating that it cannot be one and done. It needs to be that as people become more comfortable with who they are, they can get more services. And that's going to be very, very hard to advocate for. And in the same vein, I like, Doug, what you were talking about with um, the importance of getting those questions added. But I think the other piece of that is that it needs to be done as an assessment rather than a questionnaire. And the assessment needs to be done by someone who's qualified to do it, like a VRT Or if you're going to use an OT, the OT that has training and blindness, because if you just do the questionnaire, people who are ashamed and embarrassed and have the image of blindness that a lot of people do are going to answer that they can perform tasks that they can't perform or that they are performing, but they're not performing them safely. Is that Don Horn making those points? That was. Yeah. Because Don, as usual, those of you who do not know this gentleman, he 
really has an excellent knowledge of the blindness field. And, you know, you may have just understood why he makes such excellent points. So, Don, glad to have you on the Zoom today. Greg? Hi, Jeff. Uh, real quick, um, just wanted to uh, bring up a couple of things. First of all, Medicaid is only a, as effective as the people who know how to administer it. In other words, I've been to doctor's offices and um, I've asked them, is this being billed by Medicare or Medicaid? And uh, I don't know how many times they say, I don't know. And um, so that's why I say Medicaid is only as effective as those who administer it. The second um, clarification question, I guess, is uh, living in Wisconsin, as I do normally, um, uh, what did you say about Wisconsin's Medicaid program? And uh, Wisconsin and has one of the very few states that has a home and community-based waivers waiver that has included um, blindness-related services. Okay. And then my final comment is, um, I'm sorry if I interrupted you. Um, My final comment is this. Um, I appreciate that you telling me that Medicaid, uh, telling us today that Medicaid isn't just about healthcare, but there's a lot of other things that are covered by Medicaid, disability expenses and uh, things like that. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Melody, you should be able to talk. It seems that the bulk of Medicaid expenses are so focused on the personal care and taking us to the store, the cooking for us, the cleaning for us, you know, getting out of bed and things, that it's not focusing on teaching us how to cook, to clean, to label, to use transportation technology, all things like that. And if more funds could be allocated toward that, then the people who really do need basic help, who are, there's a shortage of providers, could then get more of this. And it's kind of that perception of who we are and what we can do. And then maybe we wouldn't be as afraid to try if we had more of the training there. Yeah. I mean, it's true um, because we haven't advocated for any of that for the most part in, in around the nation. And so, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And since the 1970s, the, you know, uh, disability, the severely disabled community um, has been working hard to, you know, get the law to cover those services. And we essentially have not, uh, except for our little tiny older individuals who are blind program with its, you know, $33 million or whatever. So, you know, that's, that's the, the extent of it, uh, essentially, from, from my rather skeptical and cynical perspective. Anisio? Hi, Jeff. Uh, thank you. Um, just a couple of points. One, what Melody just brought up is so critical. And I, you would think that that would be enough to, to help advance this cause of, of convincing CMS and the local states to provide funds for these services. But unlike a lot of other disabilities that receive uh, home care, um, home-based community services, are services that are are pretty much permanent for as long as they live, they're going to need that service. We're talking about funding services that are that will lead to greater independence and it will enable that person to um, not only to stop needing those services, but in fact, probably stop needing a lot of other services they're already getting today. So that's one point. The other point is this whole issue of um, professionals and who can provide the services. Um, I started in this in this field 40 plus years ago as a visual rehab therapist. And I have come to the conclusion <clears throat> that regardless of all, despite all the efforts we've done um, in the field for years and years and years, we have not been able to advance that profession enough to generate the kinds of numbers that we need. So right now we have about 600, 600 certified visual rehab therapists for the whole country. 
And honestly, that number has not changed much in the last few years. You know, a few people come in, a lot more people actually leave by retirement, et cetera. So, so that's one issue. Uh, even licensing, the issue, the, 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 the efforts that have happened around licensure in New York State, for example, uh, in many cases have failed because we don't have the numbers to show. You know, and for a state license, you need to establish a state board. You need to, I mean, there's a whole lot of expenses involved in that. So, and then finally, the third issue is acceptance. Uh, what Jeff said a while ago is, I'm sure, is very true. You know, how if you if you survey discharge man- managers from a hospital or healthcare facility, how many of them would know about OIB or about blindness services or a rehab service, vision rehab therapy, etc. So, one way of really getting closer to those kinds of professionals and and uh, attain the the um, acceptance that we need is by utilizing other professionals. And I think Jeff mentioned occupational therapists. I'm all I'm all engaged now in in not necessarily just saying okay, occupational therapists can therapists can do all this because they, obviously they can't. In fact, some of them may even be afraid of blindness anyway. But but you do have programs already in place and more coming in, as I understand it, that teach occupational therapy therapists additional skills so that they can be, be able to work with a, with people who are blind or visually impaired. And primarily we're talking about elderly people, right? That are getting becoming losing their vision later in life. So I think if we embrace that movement and encourage more. OTs to get that 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 kind of training program, we will so exponentially increase the number of available professionals to provide the service, and the service will also become a lot more recognized uh, within the medical sphere, uh, which is where Medicaid and Medicare reside. And I will now stop off my uh, soapbox. So thank you, Anisio. Anisio is really one of the uh, true uh, experts and visionaries of this field. And it has been a pleasure for me to work with him over the past few years on a lot of our advocacy efforts. Um, I guess the one thing I leave you with, and then I want to turn it back to Chris, is that I hope today we have stretched your mind a little. I don't have all the answers, and I'm not saying that any of what I've said is going to be easy or necessarily going to be likely. But I know that um, in California, we have a bill this year, which I think is going to pass. We have two bills, one on mental health services for people with vision loss and one on um, general vision rehabilitation services for people with vision loss. We've never done it before. If we can do it, and of course, I don't know for sure that the governor will sign it, but if we can do it, you can do it. And you know, it's it's time that we all work together on making things better for people with vision loss. So thank you very much. And I'll pass it to Chris. Okay. You know, this wasn't a pro a, a, an event to tell people go and apply for this. This was an event to tell people you've got a lot of heavy lifting to do in your state if you want these services and you have to get involved with agencies that might be interested in making some money through this program. And they would, because if they get the coding right, they can bill for the services that we need. And, you know, that's part of the key. And that's one of the things that happened in Milwaukee and at least one other larger city in Wisconsin. Um, They got the story right. They got the billing right. Um, they found ways to integrate services for people so that they could actually um, come up with services that would help with isolation and chalk those up. Services for for hygiene, they could chalk those up. Services for uh, mobility skills, they could chalk that up. And, you know, they could they came up with ways to do it. 
it, and it's not cheating. It's just looking at life from a different perspective. We all went to vocational rehabilitation offices because that's where we were told to go to get our blindness services. And we never thought about going anywhere else. It could be a hospital. It could be um, a SIL. It could be some other community agency that knows what they're doing. Um, and there, every state has probably has a handbook that explains provider services. And anyone who wants to get involved in creating a system within their state needs to get that provider service handbook off that website and learn it back and forth. We've been told um, that we could probably get some help from uh, Paulette Monte if, if enough interest were shown by people that we could have a bigger Zoom call that's really nuts and bolts on how to get started in a particular state. Um, but, you know, we'll leave that to see where people want to go with it and see how she w would like to handle it if she, if she um, you know, were able to do that. It's, it's really important to understand that, you know, we think of Medicaid as for poor people, but there are people who, when they're in those nursing homes, they're not really poor. They're, the nursing homes are just too expensive for them to take care of. Um, and it's true, they might put a lien on their home before they, you know, after they pass, but, you know, they don't have that. That's not a problem to worry about while you're still living. And maybe it won't even happen, you know, in the end. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of things about this that are so unmapped, so to speak, um, because we've never thought in these terms or we've always been told Medicaid doesn't provide those services because never no one ever asked them to or no, no one ever told them they could. You one and all. It was a great uh, interactive dialogue. So thank you.